this morning's message comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. The title for this morning's message is All on the Same Team. All on the Same Team from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. And the Word of God says this, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that as we begin to walk through this passage together, uh, Lord, we pray that you would sharpen our minds. We pray that you would uh, enable us, Lord God, to clear our minds of all of the cares and distractions of this world. Recognizing that uh, those things can wait, Lord. That this is your time for us to sit before your throne, to sit at your feet, to learn from you by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to rightly understand your word, particularly this passage and the upcoming passages, Lord, as we walk through them and discuss the various gifts of the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would enable me to choose my words carefully, that I would not say anything that is contrary to Scripture, that I would be faithful to the text and... Uh, and should I say anything that is contrary to Scripture, I pray, Lord, that you would strike it from the minds and the ears of those who are listening. We pray that you would be glorified in all that we do and say, and that you would teach us more about you, about your ways, about your will, Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> In the, uh, in the book of James, chapter 4, uh, James chapter 4 uh, begins with a series of interesting questions that I thought, uh, obviously, make for a good introduction to the message this morning and the text that we're going to be looking at. James writes in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he says, what? causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What a great question. 
because churches are always dealing with conflict. And, and, and it doesn't have to do with the fact that they're churches. It has to do with the fact that they're humans. Anytime you gather a group of humans together in any kind of organization to work together, there is bound to be conflict, right? Because of sin. And so James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And even when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, when you do ask, you don't receive because your desire is for selfish gain, selfish reasons, selfish motivations. So often within churches, we see this same sort of fighting and conflict and quarrels that go on. Because Christians very often desire the gifting or the position or the influence that someone else has. So often Christians will even commit murder in their heart. Right? The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, is not just about physically killing someone else. But as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, that to be angry... To, uh, to harbor evil opinions or thoughts or emotions toward a fellow man or woman is to commit murder in your heart. And so often Christians will even commit murder in their heart in order to have someone else's position within the church. Someone else's influence within the church. Someone else's gifting within the church. All humans have this innate desire to feel important and to feel special. It's called pride. We want people to think highly of us. We want people to look to us for guidance, for advice. We want people to come to us for help and teaching and learning because we want to feel special. And when we are not given the gifting or the influence, or the position that will scratch that itch, so often Christians can struggle with it. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, remember Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He leaves Timothy there, plants the church, leaves Timothy in Ephesus to put in order what remains to guide the church. And so First and Second Timothy are books written to a young pastor, giving him advice on pastoral ministry. And he says to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Because the two go hand in hand. Godliness leads to contentment. The truly godly person is a person that will be content with their station in life, with their station within the church. And contentment is a mark of true godliness. 
A person that struggles with discontentedness struggles with godliness. They struggle with spiritual maturity. And the person that is not spiritually mature, the person that is truly not as godly as they should be, will struggle with discontentedness. Which, by the way, feeds into every other sin that is out there. Right? Ultimately, every sin leads back to the sin of discontentedness. Adam and Eve sinned against God because they were not content with their station in life. People cheat on their spouses because they are not content with the spouse that God gave them. I read about a pastor not long ago um, who had a member of his church. Uh, he said that he had a member of his church who would come to him weekly. Oh, nearly weekly. He said that he had a member of his church who would come to him nearly weekly and would come to his office and would provide him with a list of criticisms from that week's sermon. And the criticism was so detailed, he would say things like, at 37 minutes and 24 seconds into the sermon, you said this. Wouldn't it have been better to say that? Or wouldn't it have been better to use this illustration? And this went on almost weekly for the better part of a year. The pastor said that he got to a point where he was becoming so discouraged with his ministry and his own sermons that he decided he was going to tell that person, the next time you come into my office, you need to limit your criticisms to only four times a year. That's it. Compile a list four times a year, but this weekly visit just need to stop. Amazingly, the next time that man came into his office, he didn't have a list. Instead, he broke down in tears and confessed his sin of discontentedness and apologized and asked for forgiveness. And of course, the pastor forgave him and all was good. Of course, he admitted that he still received criticism from that member periodically, rarely. He would receive feedback from him. But at the end of the day, that member was not content with being the one who was taught but rather desired to be the one doing the teaching. In essence, this is what is happening in Corinth. There was much infighting, there was much one-upmanship over gifting and positions within the church. There was also much jealousy and envy that was occurring over the various gifts that people had, the various positions that people served in. Some were becoming puffed up with pride toward others. Well, I have, you know, the gift of prophecy or tongues. What, what, what do you have? The gift that helping or administrating? I mean, what, what even is that? Thus, Paul wants them to understand. Paul wants them to rightly under, wants them to understand that if they rightly understand their gifts and where they come from, this should cause unity, not division. Understanding the gifts and the source of spiritual gifts should create unity and not division. And thus, Paul begins, or rather I should say continues in verse 4. And he says, now there are varieties of gifts with the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 
So he begins by immediately reminding them that whatever gifts they have, whatever service they have, meaning ministry, whatever place of service, whatever place of ministry God has placed you in, whatever activities, when he talks about there are varieties of activities, he's talking about work within the church, things that we do. We all engage in different types of activities. He says they are all from the same God. They're all gifts from God. These don't derive from ourselves. So we have no reason to be boastful. God gives us these gifts. It's interesting that Paul uses a Trinitarian formula to make the point that all three persons are involved in the giving of these gifts. There are varieties of service. He says there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit, Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service with the same Lord, which is the term that Paul most often uses to refer to Christ. And there are varieties of activities with the same God. In other words, Paul does not want them... Because he knows that they have a tendency to do this. You go back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and they're all picking their favorite apostles, right? I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. The last thing he wants them to do is start elevating one member of the Trinity above the others. These come from the Holy Spirit, so I value the Holy Spirit more than I value the other two. Paul wants them to know that just as all three persons of the Godhead were involved in creation... Genesis chapter 1, just as all three persons of the Godhead are involved in your regeneration, in your salvation, so also all three persons of the Godhead are involved in your gifting. They come all from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And why does God give different gifts to the church? Look at verse 7. <clears throat> To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. First of all, it's interesting that Paul describes spiritual gifts as the manifestation of the Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, it is not only our conversion that is evidence of the Holy Spirit. It is not only the fruit that we bear in our lives, Genesis or Galatians chapter 5, that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to understand that the gifting that we see in the body is also evidence of the Holy Spirit. It is the manifestation of the Spirit. This is why Paul will command the church in Thessalonica. In Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, Paul says this to them, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not deny prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't deny that prophecies exist, that the gift of prophecy exists, because the spiritual gifts are the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, in a church, in the body of believers. We certainly do not want to quench the manifestation of the Holy Spirit within our church. 
It is one way that we see the Holy Spirit working in our midst. The gifts that are dispensed among the believers. But why are these gifts given to the church? Notice what Paul says, for the common good. That's the key. That's the key to understanding what Paul is saying here. It's the key to understanding what Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to understand. That everything that we do, all of our ministries, all of our activities, all of the gifts should be for the common good. Not for myself, not what's best for me. Not what's best for me and my closest friends within the church. But what's best for everyone. What is best for the body. Every gift that is given to the church, every gift given to each believer is for the good of the church. Because we are one body. Paul is going to talk about that in the very next se section. That's the, that's the connection. As we move in to verse 12 and following, where he's going to talk about that we are all one body, right? As human beings, everything that we do is for our good, right? If you're sane, I mean, unless you're mentally unstable, most mentally stable individuals do everything for their good. Now, that doesn't mean that everything they do is good for them, right? People make poor choices. But ultimately, everything that we do, whether what we eat or when we sleep or how much we sleep or what we drink or whether we exercise or not exercise, we make those decisions based on what is good for me, what is good for this body. Paul says this is what the church should be like. That everything that we do, we should be asking ourselves, what is good, what is best for the body? And not what is best for me. I want you to notice his wording in verse 7. He says, to each is given. To each is given. Every believer is given a gift of some kind. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, As each has received a gift. You notice the past language that he uses. As each has been given, past perfect language, as each has been given a gift, he says, use it, Peter commands, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Because the gifts that we receive from God, we don't earn them, we don't deserve them, we're not worthy of them, they are acts of grace given by God. And we ought to use these gifts to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. But the important thing that I want to point out is that every believer has a gift. Now, you may not know what that is. You may be wondering what that is, and that's certainly something you need to pray about, seek the Lord on. But I understand Paul and Peter to be saying that if you are a believer, you have been given a gift of some kind. And we'll talk more about what those other gifts are. But each has a gift, and each is to use it, and to be content with the one they have for the common good. For the common good. In other words, you know, it's, it's football season, and I'm not as big into football as I once was years ago. 
But it's that time of the year well, where people will spend all day Saturday watching college games and then all day Sunday watching NFL games and then Monday night and then Thursday night. And their whole life will revolve around who's going to the Super Bowl as if in the grand scheme of things that really matters. But nonetheless, I know enough about football that a football team can only be successful when each player is content with his role and position on the team. They don't all do the same thing. They don't have the same role. They don't all get the same glory. Right? When was the last time you saw a whole bunch of football players jumping around an offensive lineman in the end zone? It's rare. But they all know that they need to work together they need to not be envious of each other's position. The linemen need not be envious that the quarterback or the running back gets more praise and television time than, than he does because it's all about winning. It's all about getting to the end zone. Even though to a degree they all have the same talent. In other words, on a football team, if you've spent your life, as most of them have through childhood, high school, college, and now playing in the NFL, on a football team, we know that everyone on a team is able to throw a football. They all are. Every single person can grab a football and throw a nice spiral pass to their teammate across the field. But that doesn't mean they're all qualified to be quarterbacks, right? We know that everyone on a football team is able to catch a football. You don't make it to the NFL if you can't catch a football when someone throws it to you. They can all do that. Even the kicker can catch a football. But it doesn't mean they're all qualified to be wide receivers. They can all hit and tackle. They're trained to do that from the youngest of age all the way up. They're trained to hit and tackle. But it doesn't mean that each of them is qualified to be a running back or a fullback. A successful team is a team where each player is content and focused on his role, his job. He doesn't want someone else's job. He doesn't want someone else's role. He wants to be good at the role that he has. He wants to be good at the position that he has. And as they work together as a team, they accomplish great things. Sadly, very often Christians simply don't get this. Churches are often filled with Christians who are constantly jockeying for positions. Trying to figure out how they can fill that other role or step into the shoes of that other person. Trying to be something that God has not called them to be. And how do you know what God has called you to be? I'm a part of a reformed uh, pastor's Facebook group, and not long ago, someone posted on there that, uh, you know, I, I, I think God is calling me into pastoral ministry. How do I know that that is true? And he received all kinds of varying uh, advice. A lot of it was, well, you know, you need to, you need to enroll in college and, and, and major in Greek, and then you need to pursue a seminary degree, and that's really important that you're educated. And I agree with all of that, I don't, although I don't think that that seminary is necessary for pastoral ministry. It certainly isn't. Charles Spurgeon uh, never went to seminary or college for that matter. I went to seminary because I knew that I am no Charles Spurgeon. I needed all the help I could get. 
But he was given a lot of that kind of advice. I gave him some of my own advice. I said, start serving in the church. Pour yourself into ministry. Pour yourself into the people of God and loving them with all of your heart, loving God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and see what doors God will open. And when he does, step through them. And that's how you'll know. In verses 8 to 10, Paul offers a sampling of the gifts that God gives to individual believers. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not an exhaustive list. The, he lists others in other places. We see that in verses 28 uh, to 30. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, uh, which is the, the gift of an office, I believe. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Another list that... Uh, we find from the Apostle Paul is in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the peace given to us, let, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches, the one who has the gift of teaching, use it to teach. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then we'll also see another gift in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 10 and 11. Now, as we walk through these, um, I will attempt to explain these gifts, at least that we see in the text here. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these gifts. This passage is one of those passages that can be difficult to know how to approach in a sermon. It can be tempting to want to spend a sermon on each gift and let's analyze them and let's figure out exactly what these different gifts are. I think there certainly is value in that. There is a place for that in a midweek study or in an academic Bible college or seminary course. But I try to always preach and proclaim the main message of the original author. I don't think that is Paul's main point for us to understand exactly what these gifts are and what they do and how they function. Because if he did, then he would have spent more time fleshing out these gifts, which he does when it comes to tongues and prophecy. When you get to chapter 14, he will spend an enormous amount of time helping his readers understand what is tongues, how is it to be used, what is prophecy, how is it to be used, what is its benefits, what is the dangers of it. So we'll spend more time looking at those two gifts when we get there. But here, Paul simply offers a list. And I think too often pastors make mistakes of wanting to focus in on the trees and then losing the sight of the forest. So I'm going to attempt to explain these gifts, but I won't spend a lot of time on them for three reasons. One, there is no agreement on how to define most of these gifts. There just is no, in uh, among theologians, among biblical scholars, there is just no consensus. Number two, we will be spending lots of time 
on these gifts as we move forward. Remember, Paul is going to talk about the gifts from here all the way to the end of chapter 14. So we're going to come back and we're going to revisit these gifts from time to time. And I will flesh them out a little more thoroughly as we get there. And number three, which I've already stated, that this is not Paul's main point. So in verse 8, Paul states... For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Some of your translations might say the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge, and that is because the Greek word is the word logos, which is a word that can be translated as either uh, the word of knowledge or the utterance of knowledge. The speaking of knowledge may be what Paul has in mind. But what does Paul mean by this? There's a lot of debate on the word of wisdom, right? What does that mean? What is Paul talking about? Unfortunately for us, he doesn't really explain it here or anywhere else for that matter. However, we all know what wisdom is, right? Let's not overthink this. You know, maybe I'm just a simple-minded kind of pastor, but we all know what wisdom is. Proverbs says much about wisdom. We all desire wisdom. We pray for wisdom. Wisdom in parenting. Wisdom in our marriage. Wisdom in life. Right? Wisdom at our job. Wisdom with our boss. Wisdom in ministry. Wisdom within the church. We know what that means. So what does Paul mean when he talks about a gift as the word of wisdom? Here's what I'll say. The gift of wisdom is the uncanny ability to nearly always make the right choice. You've probably known some people like that. I don't have the gift of wisdom. I pray for it. I do pray for it, as we all should be praying for it. But some of you, like me, have may have been in that stage in your life where you think to yourself, I know the right decision because whatever decision I make is going to be the wrong one, so I'll do the opposite. But people who have the gift of wisdom just have this uncanny ability to know the right choice. You may have known people like that. And not just practical matters. I'm not talking about just whether I should buy this house or buy that one. Or whether I should take this job or take that job. I'm talking about wisdom in parenting. Knowing how to approach your children. Knowing what to say to them. I'm talking about having wisdom in confrontation most of us have probably experienced that. Do I confront this person about what I saw them do or say? And if I, should I even bring it up, right? We need wisdom in that because not every sin needs to be corrected. And if I do, when, right? Wisdom and timing. Do I do it at church? Should I invite them to coffee? How should I correct this person? And then what should I say to them? I want to choose the right words so it lands on them in just the right way and it doesn't come across as being judgmental. In other words, when we think about the gift of wisdom, we can think about men like King Solomon, who was wise beyond his years, right? According to the Queen of Sheba, she came to visit with him. And she said, now I know that God surely has given you great wisdom that has never been seen. People would come to him with the most difficult dilemmas to solve, and he would find amazing ways to solve these problems. The gift of wisdom. 
the word of knowledge or the utterance of knowledge, what does Paul mean by that? Well, again, maybe I'm just a simpleton, but we all know what knowledge is. We all desire knowledge. Paul tells us we ought to seek for it. He prays that churches will have it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? With the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul says, I am praying that you will be filled with the knowledge of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, one of my go-to counseling verses. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything for life and godliness, everything that we need for living life in this world, and for godliness, for pursuing sanctification. His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of Him who called us. Through the knowledge of God. So those with the gift of knowledge are those who have an incredible mind when it comes to the things of God. Now again, here's the interesting thing about the gifts. Almost all of them is that we can all engage in almost all of the gifts, but that doesn't mean that we have the gift. We should all be praying for wisdom. We should all be seeking to grow in the knowledge of God. But the difference between pursuing knowledge, seeking knowledge, and having the gift of knowledge is simply this. Most of us in this room could study the Word of God every day, all day, for the next 10 years, and we would, stu we would still not have the mind of Charles Spurgeon or John Owen or Jonathan Edwards. Those men had amazing, amazing theological minds that I just, I could never be on that level. It's the gift of knowledge. Verse 9, Paul says, To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, by the one Spirit, the gift of faith. What, what does that mean? The gift of faith. Well, we know it's not saving faith, right? Because he's talking to the church. He, he, he believes they're all saved. He refers to them as saints at the beginning of the book. If you're a believer, you have been given the gift of saving faith. So then what does Paul mean by to another faith? He somewhat references this back in Romans chapter 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. So everyone has saving faith. All believers have faith, but we don't all have the same measure of faith, according to Paul. So then what is the gift of faith? It is the kind of faith that moves mountains. It is the kind of faith that moves mountains. We see this in many people in the Bible, Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles, right? Where they would do things out of faith, and these things would happen. I mean, often I think of uh, the story in 1 Kings chapter 18 of Elijah 
doing battle with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You know that story, right? It's an amazing story. Build an altar, douse all this water on it, pour it around. And then Elijah prays to God and fire comes down. That's the gift of faith. Because when I insert myself into that story, man, I could see myself just dousing all with water, raising my hands. Man, I hope this works. <laughs> Elijah just knew God's going to answer my prayer. And not just in the biblical world, but we could think of people like George Mueller. If you're familiar with his story, if you haven't read the autobiography of George Mueller, you need to read it. I highly recommend it. Lived in the 1800s, was the founder and director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in England. This was a man of incredible faith. One story I've never forgotten from that, from his autobiography, is there was once a time, you know, they struggled as an orphanage in England. They struggled to, to feed all of these children. But he, he knew God had called them to do this. And one day, they're getting ready for dinner, and the help, the assistants come to him, and they say, Mr. Mueller, we've got no food. We don't have any food to feed, feed the children. We don't know what we're going to do about dinner. Mueller said, have all the children just for dinner, and have them sit at the table, because the Lord will provide. True story. They all sat down at the table. They've got their dinner plates in front of them. All these little children. No food on the plates. George Mueller says, let's hold hands. We're going to give grace. The assistants, you know, they're looking at him like, this. he has lost his mind. They bow their heads and they give grace. Thank you, Lord, for this food that we are about to receive. And by the time he says amen, there's a knock at the door. He goes to the door, he opens it up. And there's a butler out there with a wagon. And he says, my, my owner, my wealthy owner, had this enormous banquet last night. And there was all kinds of food that was left over from it. And rather than throw it out, he had heard about your orphanage and wondered if you could use all of the meat and grain and fresh bread that has been baked for your orphanage. Yes, come in. You're just in time. True story. George Mueller, gift of faith. Amazing. He goes on, Paul says in verse 10, to another the working of miracles. I think that is uh, self-explanatory. The works of miracles, I'll talk about that in a bit. The works of miracles, another prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirit and to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So the gift of healing that he talks about and the gift of miracles uh, slightly different. We know what the gift of healings are. It's just the ability to heal. The apostles did that. Touch people who were blind and restored their sight. But what is the gift of miracles and how is that different? Probably it's a reference to what Paul does in Acts chapter 13 verses 10 to 11. Amazing story there in Acts chapter 13. There's a magician who is, who is trying to get in the way of Paul's ministry and he is, he is trying to discourage people from believing the message that Paul is proclaiming. Paul turns around and looks at this man and he basically calls a curse upon him and he says, you will be blind from this moment on. And immediately the man was struck blind. Right? That's not the gift of healing. That's the gift of miracles. Man was struck blind and he had to be led away by his friends. Paul doesn't do that with everybody who stands in his way. Paul had the gift of faith as well and he knew when to do that and when not to. Verse 10, he talks about the gift of prophecy. What does that mean, right? Now we're getting into some deep weeds here. 
Some of you are thinking, tread lightly, Pastor. First of all, let me say what it's not. Number one, it is not speaking authoritatively as Old Testament prophets did. Because that role is given to the apostles, is given to the apostles, and there are no apostles today. There are no New Testament apostles today. Primarily, I think that because Revelation 21 verse 14 says that in the New Jerusalem, there are 12 foundations upon which are written the names of the 12 apostles. There are only 12. Now we can debate who the 12th one should be, right? Is that Matthias or is that Paul? That's another topic. But there are only 12 apostles. Number two, New Testament prophecy is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. And I know there's a lot of debate on what I'm saying, but here is my take on all of this. You can take it with a grain of salt uh, or a pound of salt, whatever floats your boat. But New Testament prophecy is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. We see, for example, in Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, verses uh, 10 and uh, 11, uh, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. However, if you fast forward to verses 30 and 33, you see that it doesn't happen quite that way. The Gentiles actually rescue Paul from the Jews, and it is the Gentiles who bind Paul's hands and not the Jews. By Old Testament standard, Agabus should have been stoned to death. He got the gist of the prophecy right. Paul was apprehended, but he did not get the details correct. And we know that Old Testament prophets got every detail right. So Old Testament prophecy is not held to the same standard, or rather New Testament prophecy, what we see happening in the New Testament, is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. Number three, Paul is content, it would seem, to ignore New Testament prophetic utterances. You didn't do that in the Old Testament. When a prophet said something to you, that was God speaking, right? You don't disobey. Yet we see in Acts chapter 21, verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we, talking about uh, Paul and his companions, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. The Spirit is telling me, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Prophetic utterance. Paul says, I'm going anyways. Paul thought it was permissible to ignore New Testament prophetic utterances. And number four, God does not give care of the New Testament church to the prophets, but to the elders, right? Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 
Pay careful attention, he says to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he has obtained with his own blood. The point is that if New Testament prophets and prophecy were on the same level as Old Testament prophets and prophecy, then wouldn't God give the care of the church to the prophets who speak authoritatively the word of God? But the apostles don't. New Testament prophets, whoever they are, are beneath the authority of the elders. The elders are given authority and oversight within the New Testament church. Thus, New Testament prophecy, I'll get to the gist, is a divine impression of the Holy Spirit for some future event. It is a divine impression. In other words, Agabus was basically right, right? The Holy Spirit had impressed on him that something bad was going to happen to you, Paul. Somehow you're going to be apprehended. Agabus just interpreted that divine impression incorrectly with regards to the details, but he got basically the facts correct. And so Paul saw fit to ignore it. Verse 10 also says... The gift to distinguish, the ability to distinguish between spirits. The word distinguish in the Greek is the word to judge or to examine, right? To judge or to examine. Thus, we are told in 1 John, for example, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets or false teachers have gone out into the world. So John says, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every person that comes to you and says, I'm a believer. Don't believe every person that says, I've got the gift of teaching and I'm going to teach the Bible to you. Be discerning. Test the spirits. They're not all from God. They're not all preaching the word of God accurately. Thus, someone who has the gift of discernment. Someone shared with me recently that I guess the colloquial phrase for this is they have a, they have a BS meter. Can I say that? I just did. They have a bull hockey meter a bh meter they can tell when someone is just not right there's something off about this person there's there's something not right with this individual who claims to be a christian who claims to be teaching the word of god the gift of discernment the ability to distinguish between spirits and so also we'll see that in first corinthians 14 29 um, as well, where Paul will say, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. The ability to decipher, is this really from God or are you just making this stuff up? Tongues and their interpretation. Tongues and their interpretation. In verse 10, first of all, both tongues and prophecy, let me say this, are not ecstatic gifts. In other words, they are well within the control of any person that would claim to have the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. We know that because of what Paul will eventually say in chapter 14, verses 27 to 29. 
There he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. So these churches out there, these denominations out there, bless their heart. I do think if they hold to the gospel right, they are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But that they just can't control uttering in tongues or prophecy or whatever because they are somehow possessed by the Holy Spirit. That is just not biblical. Tongues is also an actual language of some kind. Even if, even if it is an angelic language. There's some debate on that. But even if it's an angelic language, it is an intelligible language on some level and in some kind. And it is not just babble and sounds. Because Paul says in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11... There, speaking about tongues, he says there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. All languages have meaning. The gift of tongues has meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So Paul understands that tongues, like every other language in the world, is an intelligible language. It has meaning to someone. In the end, I think the tongues that is being referenced here in these chapters is what we see in the book of Acts chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They all began speaking in tongues in a foreign language that other people heard in their own native language. I hear the gospel being proclaimed in my language. Of course, they were able to understand it. Thus, Paul will argue that speaking in a different language under the influence of the Holy Spirit is only beneficial with an interpreter. Which is why he will say that in uh, verse 7, right? In verse 7 of our text, how did we start it? How did we start this chapter? He says, what? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Someone speaks in tongues and there's no one that understands what he's saying. That doesn't help anybody. So Paul says, you are to remain silent. But now in verse 11, Paul comes full circle and reminds us of what he said back in verses 4 and 6. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You see, this is Paul's main point that he's driving home in this paragraph. That regardless of the gift that God has given you, you have no reason to boast. You have no reason to be arrogant because God did not give you that gift because he thought that you were deserving of it, because he thought that you were worthy of it, but simply because he apportions to each one sovereignly as he wills for the common good. Over the years, I've had many people praise me and compliment me for my preaching and my teaching and I am not tooting my own horn and you'll see this you'll see what I mean by that in just a moment 
Over the years, I've had many people compliment me for my preaching and my teaching and talk about how gifted I am and how blessed they have been by my ministry to them, uh, by my pulpit ministry over the years. And often I like to remind them that I am no different than you. I am absolutely no different than you. The difference between you and I is like the difference of two identical computers that are absolutely built the same way and have the same hardware, but they're just loaded with different software. They're just loaded with different programming. God looks at every person within the church and simply gifts them differently, and it has nothing to do with you. And therefore, God gets all the glory. And so regardless of your gift, regardless of your gift, if you know what your gift is, you believe you know what gift God has given you to use for the church, it gives you absolutely no ground for boasting. But rather should create unity because godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with the gift God has given you. Be content with your station in life. Be content with your station within the church. And let us all work together as a team for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the gifts that uh, you and your Son and the Holy Spirit have given to the church, have given to each of us, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would enable us to know what our gift is. We know from Scripture that each has been given a gift. We pray that you would help us to identify our gift and then we pray that you would help us to be content with that gift and to use it for the common good, to benefit and be a blessing to the church body. Lord, we pray that you would prevent us from being discontent with where we are within the church. We pray that you would prevent us from using our gifts to create division within the church. But we pray that you would unite us in one mind one heart, one spirit, that we might bring you the greatest glory and honor and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.